You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. Good morning. If you have a Bible, I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, still in the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be in verses 17 through 20 today, Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Uh, Also, while you're turning there, if you would like the notes to today's message, they are on the YouVersion Bible app. So if you you can go there, you can click on that uh, menu on the bottom right hand corner of the app and you click on events and you'll see the crossing church right there that has all the, the notes, the quotes and things like that. That'll be on the screen today. All right. Matthew chapter five, beginning verse 17, Jesus says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth until heaven and earth disappear. Not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Can we just pray one more time? And Father, will you just illuminate to us your words so that we might understand spiritual truths. Help us to see that your word, your way is sweeter, is deeper, it's higher, it's just better than any other way. And help us to to believe that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, on my 17th birthday... I was uh, on a date with my now wife, Allison, and I know, and that's something. She took me to Crowley's Ridge State Park, and she gifted me with this really rad uh, Tommy Hilfiger jacket. I know, it was awesome. It was the real deal, too. And, uh, and, and she, uh, I'm just saying, and I never bought anything that was real Tommy Hilfiger. I wore all kinds of fake Tommy, but she, she bought the real McCoy and gave it to me. And she gave me this Bible. Yeah, I know this right here is a new international version study Bible. Uh, it has silver foil on the sides and it has my name embossed on the bottom right hand corner of the front. A little torn today, 22, three years later, but, uh, man, it is, it's meant so much to me. I've used it a whole lot. And maybe you have received sometime in your life a, a special Bible as a gift, or maybe you have gifted a Bible to someone else. Most of us have. In fact, over a hundred million Bibles are either bought or gifted to someone every year. 20 million in the United States alone. 20 million Bibles every year in the United States. Nine out of 10 Americans own a Bible. And the average household in the United States has three Bibles in their house. And while we think of it like a book, 
Like you'll hear people say, you know, it's the most widely uh, bought book in the world. It's really more like a library, right, with tons of writings in it. And most of these writings are story or a narrative, but there's tons of poetry in there. There's several letters. There's legal code and other rules. You see genealogies in there. There's some wisdom one-liners, which are perfect for Twitter or Facebook updates. There are prophecies about the end of the world, theological essays. There's literally so much in here. And not only that, but the Bible was not just written by one author. In fact, there are some 40 plus authors who, who make up this library. It was written on a, about three different continents in three different languages. And the, the time of the first writing until the last writing spans some 1,500 years. In other words, the United States could have come into and out of existence like six or seven times during the time of the first, between the first and last writings of the scriptures. And so even though nine out of 10 Americans may own a Bible, a recent study showed that less than half of them have even read half of it. And why is that? Like, well, it seems like we're at this really radical point in the history of the church where there's a growing number of people who actually have quite a bit of a problem with the Bible. They don't read it because it's boring or it's weird or it's hard to get your head around or they have iPhones and Netflix, and sports, and other better things to do. Or maybe they do read it, but they just don't understand it, because it is very hard to understand. Or maybe they read it, and they do understand it, but some people actually take issue with what it says. Especially in the Old Testament, you see lots of violence and abuse. You see laws that regulate slavery, that put a price on men and women and children. You see pain and suffering. Even the New Testament has lots of things in it that are radically at odds with our day and age. And so people's view of the Bible, they're really all over the map. And I'll give you a couple, uh, one on, uh, on each end, I guess, of the spectrum. Sam Harris, who wrote a book called The End of Faith, he's a, a famous, I guess you'd say, atheist or almost, I would say, anti-theist. Uh, who is railing against the Bible says this, we'll put it on the screen, I think. Uh, it's time we admitted from kings and presidents on down that there is no evidence that any of our books was authored by the creator of the universe. The Bible, it seems certain, was the work of sand-strewn men and women who thought the earth was flat and for whom a wheelbarrow would have been a breathtaking example of emerging technology. Sam Harris, obviously not a fan of the Bible, But then on the other hand, you have people like our president, Donald Trump, who in a CBN interview says this. He says, I think the Bible is certainly, it is the book. It is the thing. I I get sent Bibles by a lot of people. Actually, we keep them at a certain place, a very nice place. And you know, it's very interesting. There's no way I would ever throw anything or do anything negative to a Bible. So what we do is we keep all the Bibles I would have a fear of doing something other than very positive. So actually I store them and keep them and sometimes give them away to other people. But I do get sent a lot of Bibles and I like that. I think that's great. Donald Trump, big fan of the Bible. And so, and so more importantly than Sam Harris's view of the Bible and more importantly than Donald Trump's view of the Bible is this question. How do you view the Bible? How do you read it? How do you interpret it? Do you regard it as trustworthy? 
Do you believe it's authoritative? How do you even know that you can trust it? And while there is lots of good evidences that we could give today as to why you can trust the Bible or believe that the Bible maybe is from God and not just from human beings, but I do believe that the most helpful evidence that we might have is really the most simple. Andrew Wilson in his book, Unbreakable, writes this. He says, our trust in the Bible stems from our trust in Jesus. I don't trust in Jesus because I trust the Bible. I trust the Bible because I trust in Jesus. I love him and I have decided to follow him. So if he talks and acts as if the Bible's trustworthy, authoritative, good, helpful, and powerful, I will too. Even if some of my questions remain unanswered or my answers remain unpopular. It's like we sang just a while ago that Jesus died and was buried and there wasn't no grave that could hold his body down. And because Jesus is alive, like, like because Jesus came up out of a grave and is alive today, and I have tethered my life to Jesus, then I want to adopt for myself the view that Jesus had of the Bible. Christians are apprentices of Jesus. And so if we're going to practice the way of Jesus, then more important than even what our opinion or view of the Bible is, is how did Jesus view the Bible? And so in the passage today, we see Jesus' take on the Bible, which he calls in verse 17, the law and the prophets, which is just basically the Old Testament. And right out of the gate, we're going to see that Jesus views all of these writings, this library, as telling one story, which he says is going to find its climax in the person and life of Jesus himself. And so in doing this, Jesus is going to make one particular group of people very upset which is the religious leaders. In verse 20, you see that phrase, the Pharisees and teachers of the law. And anytime you see that in the New Testament, you can just mentally say religious leaders. And so all over the New Testament, you're going to see hostility by Jesus towards religion. So when Jesus gets near like messed up people of the world, you know, the prostitutes, the sinners, the tax collectors, he's very patient, very kind. But when he gets near religious leaders, he's very sharp. And it's religious people who are the most angry at what Jesus said. Over and over again, the crowds, like the common people of the world, they're fascinated with Jesus. And they don't always believe everything he says, but the religious people reacted to Jesus with anger. And so one of the main points of the New Testament is that you're never going to understand Christianity Unless you see that it is something utterly different than religion. And not only that, it's the key to understanding the whole Sermon on the Mount and Jesus' view on the Bible. So at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, without trying to give too much away, both in the version that is in Luke 6 and in the one we're looking at here in Matthew 5 to 7, Jesus says this kind of thing. He says, in summary or in conclusion, I put before you two ways. There's two paths. One leads to life. One leads to destruction. There are two trees. One has good fruit and the other has poison fruit. There are two houses. One's built on a rock and one's built on the sand. And then Jesus says, choose. So he says you have two ways, two trees, two houses, two ways of life. Now on the surface, they look very much the same. But one of the ways is poison. It poisons its eaters 
It destroys its travelers. It collapses on its residents. What are these two ways that Jesus puts in front of us? Not that way, but this way. Not that house, this house. Like what, what are these two ways? Well, traditionally, and I would, I would admit the way that I've most of my life, like viewed the two ways is, is basically you can either do good or you can do evil. You can either live according to the Sermon of the Mount or, uh, or not. You can live according to the law of God or not. You can either obey God's laws or disobey God's laws. Life or destruction, good fruit, bad fruit. But when you look throughout the Sermon on the Mount, like actually in the Sermon itself, you don't see Jesus comparing those who obey God's laws to those who disobey. How could those two trees even look alike? How could those two houses look alike? I mean, those two lives are very different. But when you go through the Sermon... You don't see Jesus saying, here are the people who are obeying God's laws and here are the people who aren't. He doesn't say, like, hey, here are the people who pray and here are the people who don't pray. No. He says, you pray like this, but you should pray like this. He doesn't say, here are people who give to the poor and here are people who don't. No. He says, some people give to the poor like this, you should give to the poor like this. He doesn't say, here are people who obey the Ten Commandments and here are people who don't. No. He says, you've heard it said, do not murder. You obey it like this, but I say obey it like this. And here's the scary thing. Like in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus Christ does not contrast like two ways that one's obviously good or better than the other is bad. Rather, both ways look good. And both groups of people obey God's law. Both groups of people follow the Ten Commandments. They give to the poor, go to church, study the Bible. And yet one of them is poison. You can see it in the text we're looking at today. Looked at verse 19. Jesus said, anyone who breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So notice that both groups of people in verse 19 are in the kingdom of heaven. Now, some are doing well and some are doing not so well, but they're both in Then suddenly in verse 20, Jesus says, however, there's these religious people who are not in the kingdom of heaven at all. He says, your righteousness must surpass their righteousness or you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And what he's saying is not they're good and you're bad or you're good and they're bad. In fact, you're both trying to do the same thing. You're both trying to obey God. So Jesus is saying Christianity is vastly beyond. It surpasses Religion. It's something utterly different. That's what he's saying. Don't mistake Christianity for religion. Don't make Christianity like just about going to worship or praying or giving to the poor. Don't make mistake Christianity for that. I mean, yes, that is involved. We should do those things, but you can do all of that and it'd be poison and you'd be on your way to destruction. You can be building a house on the sand. And does that scare you? It scares me. Because like all my life, like I've been a, a very good person, you know, I grew up, honestly, I would have to say like the model child. I mean, it's not literally not to pat myself on the back, but it's where I found my identity. Like was in being good. Man, I was trying hard. And I, like a good religious person, looked down on all of you people who did not live like I did. And so maybe you're saying like, that's crazy. I thought Christianity was about like 
living, leaving the immoral lifestyle and like trying to live according to the Bible, the example of Jesus. And while, like I said, that is part of it, if that's your view, you miss the point. And the key, Jesus says, is if you want to be in the kingdom of heaven, you've got to practice the way of Jesus, which vastly surpasses the way of the religious leaders. And so the question we're going to answer today is how does the way of Jesus surpass the righteousness of the religious leaders? Like, how does it surpass it? Well, there's four ways, and they're going to build on each other. We'll throw those on the screen. First, we see that the way of Jesus is brighter than religious righteousness. It's brighter because it's deeper. It's deeper because it's sweeter, and it's sweeter because it's higher. So let's just start working through these to understand what we're talking about. Number one, it is brighter. Remember back to last week's sermon. If you haven't listened to it, by the way, go to the podcast. Absolutely. It's awesome. Where we looked at Christians being like salt uh, and like light. Just a few verses before what we read today, Jesus literally says, you are the light of the world. And so there's two groups of people, even in that text, who are doing good deeds. One are doing, one's doing it under a bowl, and one's doing it in a way that attracts and delights the world. So therefore, the first difference between the way of Jesus and the way of religious people, catch this, is that the way of Jesus is attracted to and attractive to the world. The way of the religious leaders is repulsive to and repulsed by, turned off by the world. And so because we're salt and light, Christians have a way of making the world feel better. Religious people have a way of making people feel worse, making, making you feel condemned. Mahatma Gandhi said this. He says, I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Well, a true Christian is somebody who always sees his own sin as a plank and the sins of other people as specks. Religious people, on the other hand, see their own sin as a speck and others' sins as planks. And that's the reason religious people always make you feel worse. Uh, by the way, a quick uh, little caveat before I can move on. I don't want to say that Christianity's beliefs are popular. Like everyone loves the beliefs that you may have. Like absolutely not. When we say that the way of Jesus is attracted to or it's attractive to the world, we're not saying that the message of Jesus is attractive. Like the gospel is still very repugnant to people. Like as soon as you open your mouth and you say what you believe, you're going you're gonna to cause some trouble. So the way of Jesus is not to be confused like with the message of Jesus. So here's the difference. If you're practicing the way of Jesus, you never act or feel superior to anybody else, especially those who are different from you. And this is the reason, by the way, that your attitude toward, I'm just going to give an example, but like, cause you know, I deal with students all the time. So like your attitude towards the students, for example, in Paragould can really help you understand whether you're a Christian or a religious person. Because when you take a look at the youth in Paragould, you're going to see two things. Like first of all, you're going to see that there are some things that are falling apart. And religious people would say, I don't want anything to do with those people. It shows that you have no saltiness at all. Religious people look around and say, what is, what is wrong with the teenagers today? I remember being part of this old-fashioned business meeting. I, I was brand new, like in ministry. I was like 20 years old. 
Not even. I was, yeah, 19 or 20 years old. And I was at this little old country church. You remember that place, Adam? Adam came and visited us one time. A little old country church, and we had business meetings back then, which is where everybody in the church, you know, argues about the way things should be. And, uh, well, at least in this one it was. And it was oftentimes, <laughs> oftentimes got a little salty in there. I'm going to use that word. Uh, but anyway, there was, uh, there was a man who stood up and in kind of righteous anger was, was saying, we've got some things that we need to change. And if we, do, if we don't love on these teens in our church, there was a group of teens, kind of like a growing group. And uh, he said, if we don't love on them and like show them their value and stuff, they'll leave. And there was a cratchety old woman behind me who I heard her say, good. Oh, I, I just, what? What? This is, this is amounting to saying like my sin is a, is a speck, but their sin, a plank. And see the way of Jesus though, it is attractive. It's brighter, but why? Well, secondly, not only is it brighter, but it's brighter because it's deeper. The way of Jesus is deeper than the way of religious people. So when Jesus says, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, and you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven, he knew that everybody listening had to have been like blown away. Because the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, what they did was full-time obedience. Like that was their job. They had worked the Bible into something like 635 laws or rules. Some positive, some negative. They had like a checklist. Things you have to do and things you were to avoid. They spent all day working on it. And so when Jesus says your righteousness has to surpass, right away people had to have been like, how? (laughs) How can I be more righteous than them? Who, Who in this world could be more righteous than the Pharisees? And so what does Jesus mean when he says you have to surpass Well, over and over again, like we see it in verse 21, 27, 31, 33, 43, he says things like this, like leading out of this text, he says, you've heard, but I say, and he goes through the 10 commandments. So for example, he says, you've heard, you shall not murder and you heard, you shall not commit adultery. You've heard it said that you shall keep your promises, not lie. What's he doing? Well, in every case, he says, your religious people are concerned with what's on the outside but I'm concerned with the heart. So you can have the external and the heart will still be just like everyone else in the world. But if your heart is completely new, then the external you'll have as well. So this is how Jesus interprets the Bible. We'll look at a couple of examples again, without giving away too much about what's coming up in the series. But Jesus says, okay, let's take a look at murder. You've heard it said you shall not murder, and religious people are concerned about not physically murdering somebody. Check. Got it. No O.J. Simpson here, you know. But I say, Jesus says, if in your heart you have ill will or you despise people or you think of people as fools, you disdain them, you're indifferent to them, you have killed them. Then he goes on to sex. You've heard it said you shall not commit adultery. Well, the Christian sex ethic, by the way, says... What? No sex outside of marriage. So what's that all about? Well, when you have sex outside of marriage, you're saying like, I want to have physical, external nakedness and vulnerability, but I don't want to give you personal 
nakedness and vulnerability. So in other words, I want to be naked physically, but I don't want to give you myself in every other way. Like, I don't want to marry you. I don't want to give up my independence. I don't want to give up my option. And Jesus Christ says, when you ask for physical nakedness and you don't have the integrity or the guts to back it up with personal nakedness and you're not willing to put your whole heart out there, that's lust. And when you do that, even in fantasy, you are stabbing yourself in the heart. And then Jesus goes on to speak about telling the truth. He says, you've heard it said that when you take an oath, you know, you better stick with that oath. But he says, that's external. Like, I'm, like you signed a contract and if you break the contract, the lawyers are coming and they're going to, they're going to get you. But Jesus says, no, I say, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Well, what does that mean? Well, your heart should be so full of integrity, your heart, that every single thing that you say, every yes and every no should be taken seriously as if you had sworn on a stack of Bibles. The external consequences to a Christian, like they mean nothing. It's not about the external consequences. And so all through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus reveals that religious people obey God's laws for the same reasons. Now, religious people obey God's laws for the same reasons that like worldly people disobey God's laws. And that's fear and pride. So again, let me say it again. Religious people obey God's laws. Religious people, not the way of Jesus, the way of the religious people. We obey God's laws for the same reasons that a... A worldly person disobeys and there's fear and pride. So think about it. Why does a worldly person tell a lie or not tell the truth? Like the reason, one reason is fear. Like I might lose my money or I might get caught in whatever it is that I did. I'm afraid of what will happen if I tell the truth. Fear might drive a worldly person to lie. Another reason they might lie is pride. Like trying to get the upper hand or present themselves to be something that they're not or fudge on something in order to get ahead. Like I'm going to, I'm going to say or do whatever I have to in order to get what I want. So it's pride, fear and pride. So it can cause people to lie. But why do religious people choose not to lie, but tell the truth? Well, Jesus says it's fear and pride. The religious person would say, I better not lie because like, if I lie, God's going to get me, you know, like I I might, um, I might make God angry and I'm afraid. I'm afraid to lie. And to be quite honest, this was the primary motivating factor for my goodness. Most of my life It was like, I'm just, I was so afraid of doing something wrong. So I never went to parties. I never drank I never smoked anything like people wouldn't even ask me. In fact, I remember being in high school and I was so proud that I had a friend of mine who was standing near me and, um, we were with a group of people and one dude like threw a cuss word out there. And this friend of mine was like, hey, dude, don't cuss. Robert's here. And dude, I was like, darn straight. You know what I'm saying? And I, I was I'd be afraid, afraid to even say something different because like God, God might do something to me. Another, per, another reason a religious person might give for not lying is that that's what those kinds of people do. I'm not a liar. I'm a good person. So out of fear and out of pride, these people over here don't lie. And out of fear and out of pride, these people over here do lie. And Jesus is saying, what's the difference? One kind of goodness is selfish goodness. Religious goodness is selfish goodness. It wants leverage. Like if I tell the truth, God's going to be good to me. If I tell the truth, I can feel superior to other people. 
It's why religious people are so alienating and shallow. But the way of Jesus is brighter because it is deeper. And it's deeper, why? Well, number three, because it's sweeter. The good news about the Sermon on the Mount is that when you read through it carefully, you see that Jesus Christ does not say, try to live like this and then God will be your father. No. All the way through, he's saying, you can only live like this when you know that God is your father. Here's what Jesus shows us on the Sermon on the Mount. It's impossible unless you know that you are valuable to God. It assumes that, that you know this. The difference between religion and Christianity is that religion obeys the law of God. Religion does. Obeys the law of God trying to get value. And in chapter 6, it says the reason that you give to the poor is so that people will honor you. In chapter 6, it says the reason that you pray is that to get God to listen to you because of your many words. A religious person tries to get value. A religious person says, if I do all these good things, God will, God will have to listen to me and, and people will honor me. And that's why you alienate others. That's why. Religious people never do anything unless it's about them. So when they help the little old lady across the street, it's not about her, it's about you. Maybe God will answer your prayers and you'll feel like a pretty good person. Why do you help the poor? It's not about the poor, it's about you. And it's the reason why very often religious people, by the way, their help of the poor can come across so condescending and it can be so ineffective. It's filled with superiority. So why does a religious person pray? It's about you, not for him. It's the reason why our prayers so often are filled with petition to God, like, please do this for me, do this, do this, do this, and very little adoration or repentance. Emmanuel Kant argued that there really is no such thing as a selfless good deed. And I don't know if you've read much of him, but maybe you saw that episode of Friends where basically, uh, who was it, Joey and Phoebe, they spent an entire episode arguing over whether or not there truly can be a selfless deed. Anybody ever see that episode? No. Well, no, that's fine. But, but Christianity means, Christianity knows this, that you know God as your father and not as your boss. Like if you're an employee and you're good, you have a boss. If you are bad and you disobey the laws or the rules of your workplace, you are fired. If you're a child, however, you have a father and a mother, and you're good, you have a father and a mother. But if, on the other hand, you're bad, you may have a grumpy father or mother, but you still have a father or a mother. In fact, by the way, fathers and mothers, you know something, don't you? That there's something very weird going on here. Like if you have multiple kids, like I have four, um, and one of them is being disobedient, so often it's the case that the disobedient one seems to have your heart the most. Like why is that? Well, it's the nature of parenthood. In fact, there's nothing you could possibly do to make God love you any less. And there's nothing you could possibly do to make God love you anymore. And so therefore the way of Jesus is brighter because it's deeper and it's deeper because it is sweeter. And why is it sweet? Because it's higher. So the answer in verse 17 is the secret to the whole thing. And Jesus says to his followers, 
or to, uh, that his followers, excuse me, have a higher view of the law of God than religious people. Check this out. Followers of Jesus have a higher view of the law of God than religious people. Now, I'm sure when Jesus gets to this verse, he, sa- he says, like, I bet you're thinking, like, because I'm putting out there that God's your father, that you can be sure of his love and acceptance, like, no matter who you are or where you are. I'm sure you think that I have, like, a low view of the Bible. But actually, I have a higher view of the Bible than you do. And so, why does he say that Christianity, then, would have a higher view of the Bible than religion? Well, there's really like two kinds of religion, okay? We're going to put these out there. It could be offensive. But the first is there's like liberal religion. And liberal religion, uh, and then there's, there's conservative religion. Liberal religion says basically that God loves everybody. Just try your best. It'll all work out in the end. You kind of do you. And God's going to, he's going to love you. He's your father. He's the father of everybody. That's liberal religion. Conservative religion, on the other hand, says like these are the rules. Do this or else. Tim Keller said it this way. He said, conservative religion knows that you're a sinner. It doesn't really know that you're loved. Liberal religion knows that you're loved, but it doesn't cost God anything to love you. So Jesus Christ comes along and he says, I have not come to abolish the law. And that's like against liberal religion. I haven't come to say like, hey, forget about the Old Testament. Forget about the law. He says, I come to fulfill it. And that's against conservative religion. So what does he mean when he says, I've come to fulfill it? Well, look again at the Sermon on the Mount. Like, first of all, he's the only person who's ever even lived like this. Like, he's the only, like, he's preaching a sermon that no one has ever lived up to, ever. I haven't. You haven't. No, no one ever has. Jesus has, like, this perfect record. In fact, he's the only one who ever completely obeyed and fulfilled the law of God. And then here's what happens. Because of this high view of God, in fact, like, like religious people say, do your best, you know, try real hard. And Jesus says, no, I have a higher view than that, than that. He says, be perfect. I say, be perfect. And because Jesus was perfect, and then he goes to the cross on our behalf, check out what happens. Like there is an exchange, a literal exchange that happens when Jesus is on the cross. And the way that I best think about it and explain it to teenagers is this, and it might be helpful to you because we all were in school at one point, but just imagine that you're in class, you go to, you're in school and you, you take all the classes, but you are a total bum loser. I mean, like you don't even show up to class. Most of the time you slough off all the the tests. You make zeros on everything. Like you, you don't even try. It's it's terrible. Zeros, Fs, all the way down the report card. Now, when you take something like that home, if you have a responsible parent at home waiting for you and you hand that to them, what's going to happen? For me, you'll be be in trouble. You know, there's a punishment coming. You're going to be treated. You're going to fail. You're going to be punished. I mean, there's there's bad coming your way. Now, let's just imagine that Jesus took all the same classes that you did. Yeah, he was in, enrolled in the same classes. He shows up every day. He pays attention. He takes the test, makes one hundreds on every single test ever. Every test always makes a one hundred. And then Jesus's report card has all one hundreds all the way down. Let's just imagine if you had a report card like that and you present it to mom and dad, what happens then? Like, whoa, way to go. Like you pass on, you become valedictorian, you, you, uh, you know, you get the rewards, you get to have ice cream at Dairy Queen, that kind of stuff, right? 
And so here's what happens at the cross. Jesus takes his perfect record. Well, let's start over first. What happens at the cross is Jesus takes your report card of zeros and takes it on himself and gets treated by God as if he had taken the classes in your place and done the the performance you had, had done. And so all the punishment that was coming to you then gets placed on Jesus and in exchange, his perfect report card gets extended to you. And by faith in Jesus and his death on the cross, you simply receive it and then you receive all the, the blessing and the reward that's coming to Jesus. You see that? So Jesus has a higher view of the law of God. He says, be perfect. And since you're not and you can't trust in me and watch because I'm perfect. And because I died in your place and rose from the dead, you can tether your life to me, adopt my lifestyle for yourself, and receive all that I have coming to me. So the religious person says, do your best. He says, no, be perfect. I've been perfect for you. And so what does all this mean? Well, in verse 19, it says that one of the ways, like you know that you're a Christian, is that you love to study and obey the law of God. It's like if you're a religious person, you're scared of the law of God. If you're a relativistic person, like a liberal person, you hate the word of God. But Psalm 1 says, blessed is the godly man because his delight is in the law of God. And on it, he meditates day and night. So in other words, like one of the ways you can tell that you're practicing the way of Jesus is that you love to have God tell you what to do. You delight in meditating on and finding out how you can change. One of the best ways to know that you really understand the gospel of grace. Because if you read the Bible or the Sermon on the Mount and you feel like terrible and you're saying like, oh my goodness, like how could God ever love me? You don't get it. You still don't understand what Jesus means when he says, I have come to fulfill it. You're still stuck in this certain kind of religiosity. And if you don't love to have him tell you what to do and where you're wrong and instead giving you delight, it crushes you. You just don't get it. So the last thing we'll say is this. Like if you're, if you're maybe here and you're not sure if you're a Christian, I just want to give this one suggestion. Like the Sermon on the Mount is not like a ladder. Okay, it's not like a way Jesus gives us to climb up to God. Do these certain things. Instead, the Sermon on the Mount says that there's two ways. One way is to say that out of my goodness, I will seek to get God and other people to give me what I want. To give me, to to fill my inner emptiness. To give me approval and worth. Like that's one way. Or you can say I'm going to build my whole life and my approach to God on what Jesus has done for me. You can be your own savior or you can let him be your savior. So it's like this why in the road. And the Sermon on the Mount is not like, here's the ladder, climb on up. No, it's simply choose. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to stand together because every week, what's so great is like we have this reminder, like a tangible reminder that all the work, that all the climbing that needed to be done has been done for us. And so when we come to a table, we're about to take communion together. And if you're like new here, let's explain how it goes. You're going to come by to one of these four stations. There's two in the front, two in the back. That one back there is gluten-free. And when you come, you'll take a piece of bread, tear it off. It represents the body of Jesus, which was broken for you. And you're going to dip it in the juice, which represents the blood of Jesus, which was shed for your sins 
so that when you place your faith in him, you can know that his perfect record is credited to you. And you're, you're, a, you're a son of God. You're a child of God. And so we need that tangible reminder every week that like we want to we have this sweeter presence about us. We want to adopt the way of Jesus and be salt and light like we heard last week. We want to, we want to see that, that, that it's more than about following rules, but it's about our heart, that God's after our heart. So let's pray together, and then we'll come forward and we'll, we'll take of communion. Father, I'm so grateful for, for the Bible, for your word. I mean, what a gift. Um, it, ex, it, it illuminates to us like who you are. Um, it's just like the whole world is guessing. Like who's God? And they try so hard. Like just, All over the world you see it. There's all these attempts at people to try to appease you. And it always seems like every system out there is some way of like, let me do this or try this in order to get you, get some God to, to notice me or like me or forgive me. But God, we, we see today like that it's not even possible. Like we, we realize that we're broken. We know that there's, there's something messed up about the human condition. But we learn today that, that you've sent a Savior to do what we couldn't do, we weren't even willing to do. And God, if we just put our life in his hands, that we could be forgiven and have a new life with you. So meet with us now as we take this communion together. We love you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.